To you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him all His angels, praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon, praise Him all stars of light, praise Him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. Let us remain standing and sing together hymn number 17.
please be seated. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we come to you together, uh, together again this evening, recognizing your grace, which brings us here. Uh, we, we understand that we deserve nothing but wrath, and you give us favor instead. You give us love, you give us heaven, you make us heirs uh, of an eternal inheritance along with your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you threw in your lot with ours, that you took up our cause as our champion and as our captain. We thank you that you became a man like us so that we might uh, become a son like you. Uh, the, the, the relation which you bear to us, the desire which exists in you to save us, those sinners. Uh, and really we can never comprehend how grievous our sin is. Uh, but, but, but insofar as we are able to, to comprehend it, to think that you still wish to save us at so great a cost to yourself, uh, we cannot even begin to understand it. Words are unable to express it. Uh, there is a love which surpasses understanding as we read in scripture. And so, so we, we would say ourselves. Uh, we, we simply adore you. We magnify you. Uh, we confess you as our Lord and as our Savior. And, and we, we tell you that you are altogether lovely. There is none besides, none more lovely, none more worthy of our devotion and our adoration. Lord, there is much in the world that is uh, capable of drawing away our affections. Some of these things are good, indeed. Uh, many of them are not. Uh, but none so worthy as you. Uh, there is nothing uh, which compels a life of devotion uh, and nothing that so fills our lives with meaning as your presence and your power and your love. God, uh, we are also amazed at your ways, that you are pleased to, de to demonstrate your power in weakness. And we are very weak. Uh, and if ever we hope to experience your power, well, we have good hopes that we might because uh, you do not look for great outward displays of strength. We do always. It's what we always want. It's what we always look for. And we always wish that you would do uh, great and mighty things. And sometimes you do. But far more often is your power perfected and magnified in weakness so that you would get the glory and not man. Uh, Lord, we, we see here an ample opportunity for that. There is, uh, there is no outward display of glory, not even a little bit to be found here. We're just like the Corinthians, just a small band of, uh, of unhallowed or, 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 or uh, uh, people who just are not accounted as anything in the world. There just isn't anyone here, uh, none of us, whom the world accounts as great, nor any here who would account themselves as great. Just average folks. Uh, and in many ways despised by the world because of what we believe. Uh, but as we gather together in this way, uh, we, we look for you to demonstrate your power, whether it is in saving us, which is indeed the greatest display, or even in just uh, acts of mercy, which we are capable of in ways the world is not. Uh, a real spirit of charity and love which prevails among us, uh, building us up in holiness week by week. Uh, Father, we recognize, though our flesh is apt to, uh, to doubt, that worship is an encounter with the living God. And the, the, the potential for explosive power, spiritually speaking, is always present. It isn't always, uh, it isn't always actual, but it is always potentially there. And, and we are just waiting, Holy Spirit, to see what you will do. We recognize that you are sovereign and the, the, the wind blows where it wills. 
Uh, sometimes here, sometimes there, sometimes not at all. Sometimes in great measure. We leave it to you, but we, we confess uh, our own anticipation uh, to see what you will do next, having experienced uh, it to a very great de- degree already, your saving power in our lives. And so, gracious Lord, as we go into the new year and as we set aside another slate of Sabbaths, 52 in all, bringing the first to a close, we have, uh, what is it, 104 opportunities to worship you. So much potential there, O Lord, to do good and to experience your power and to grow in grace and to do good to the brothers uh, and, and even to shine as lights in the world. We ask you, O God, to act. We ask you to act decisively. We ask you to act uh, for the well-being of the church, both within these walls and without. Would you labor uh, for our well-being in the world and through the civil magistrate? Would you keep us from entering into days of hostility with the state? We don't want to be in a battle as others are just to keep the church open. God, uh, as we confess this morning, the future, the whole year lays in your hands. And, uh, and, and we're okay with that. We, we rest content with that. We are glad about it. And, and all that we ask, O oh God, is that you would comfort your church more strongly with the thought of your providence and your power. And give us the courage to face whatever it is that you have for us in the coming days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a parallel, uh, an unsurprising one in Hebrews. But I want to read Hebrews chapter 9 as our scripture reading. Uh, if you remember in one of the recent sermons I made. Uh, there were two sermons, one, the, the blood that is shed, the second, the blood that is sprinkled, both which we find in uh, Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, we find both of those elements in the Passover meal, in the Passover event. I want to highlight uh, the shedding of blood or, or the uh, both, both elements as we find them in Hebrews. And then just one verse about the faith of Moses. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, he's referring to Exodus 24, but you find the same elements in Exodus 12 in the Passover. You even find the hyssop by which they were to sprinkle the door with blood. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 28, by faith, he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Now, in response to God's word, let us stand together and sing the doxology.
please be seated. Let us recite together the Apostles' Creed. Say along with me now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now as we prepare uh, to consider God's word again, let us stand together and sing hymn number 177. Please be seated. 
turn with me now to the book of Exodus chapter 12. I want to do something a little bit out of the ordinary, and that is I want to uh, break up the passage out of order. Uh, And that is just because the Passover is uh, a major event and it will take uh, at least two sermons, but to be honest, I don't know how many. And what I wanted to emphasize in this sermon was the Paschal Lamb. Paschal Lamb is emphasized in verses 1 through 13, but then taken up again in verses 21 through 28. And so those will be the verses that we read. So hear the word of God. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of the raw or boiled at... uh, um, any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And skipping ahead to verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, And on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for this great word we recognize in the Old Testament. Here is the great act of redemption. 
we could say the great act even of atonement, greater even than what was found in the tabernacle. I don't know if that's true, but we could say it. It was certainly a great event, and we thank you for it. We ask you to, to open up its significance to us and help us to see the gospel more clearly through its, through its teaching. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is the institution of the Passover meal, uh, which, as we see here, is more than a meal. The Passover is uh, more like a sacrament. It is a sacred rite to be observed by Israel as she departs out of Egypt. And so we know that the Passover is obviously highly significant, both from the standpoint of Old Testament religion as it would become a standing celebration, I didn't read this first, but I could read it now. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. But also from the standpoint of the New Testament, and it is at the Passover meal that our Lord institutes the Lord's Supper. As Matthew Henry points out, there is no ceremony found in the Old Covenant that is mentioned as frequently in the New Testament as the Passover. And the reasons for this I hope to make plain. And we will see how much of the New Testament teaching comes in uh, as we consider this under several sermons. Though I can't say how many. But we need to get a handle on what's going on here. There is, as with uh, the other sacrifices that Israel was to observe, much detail for us to consider and to explore. And so let me, just as I've been doing with each of these events, make a series of observations. The first thing we notice is that this follows after Moses' final encounter with Pharaoh. That's what we just saw in chapter uh, chapters 10 and 11. These two men were now done with each other. Now Moses must take up his task as the shepherd of Israel, or as uh, the book of Hebrews says in chapter 3, the apostle of the Old Covenant. We also notice at the outset, not only that these two men are finished with each other, and now Moses' focus really becomes Israel, but that it occurs in the land of Egypt, uh, which uh, the more I considered, the more I realized was highly significant. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, and they were to observe the first Passover in the land of Egypt. The significance here is that God would have them worship him before their release and not after. Of course, they would worship him in the wilderness too once they had been delivered. That is what God was contending for all along. Let my people go that they may serve me and that they may worship me in the wilderness. All the people and the cattle and the children and so forth. We've seen all of that. And we know that there will be plenty of worship to be had there, though sadly we'll see and mostly it will be false worship. But before they go, they must worship. They must observe this sacred ordinance, however hurriedly. As Matthew Henry says, when our heads are fullest of care and our hands of business, yes, we, yet we must not forget our religion nor suffer ourselves to be indisposed for acts of devotion. In other words, to put it very simply, it's always time to worship God. Period. Plain and simple. And that's what God was reminding Israel of here. Don't wait until you're delivered. 
I want you to worship me first, and then I'll deliver you. But think of Israel as she was here in the land of Egypt, in the midst of great calamity. Her redemption was not yet. It was still unrealized. How anxious she must have felt, how eager she was to get on with it and to get out of Egypt. Pharaoh's wrath grew hotter by the moment. And still they were slaves. Their anxieties, as I say, must have been very great. And yet, do you see what God says here, even as they're in Egypt? Well, in essence, he says to them what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you besides. Notice the order with care. I think we have to see, and I'm speaking to all of us here, even to myself, that worship isn't always timely in our eyes. It isn't always convenient. Sometimes it seems that something better needs to be done. Or some other priority stands in the way. There are times when it would seem to us that it is prudent to wait or to put it off for temporal reasons. Perhaps we fear sickness as in a pandemic. Or perhaps we're just busy. Wait a little longer, we say, until it is safe or convenient to come. But do you see what God says here? At the high point of Israel's calamity. Worship me now. Then see how I will contend for you and set your affairs in order. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you beside. Yes, the order is important. Jesus tells us it is so. And we see it here as plain as day. So worship him. Though his deliverances seem far off. And though the calamities we face seem very great. And though our hearts are filled with worldly care. Waiting to see what the Lord will do. The point is, I say again. And I don't know if the passage could be any clearer. Don't wait to worship. Don't delay. Don't put it off. We must not forget our religion, Matthew Henry says. No, not in a pandemic, nor in any other time. It is always time to worship God. But another point about the timing is also fascinating. Where we see what the Lord says in verse 2. He says, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Again, as I say, we cannot but help, uh, help but notice the timing. Here, uh, the Lord is saying, in essence, this is the dawning of a new era. This is the beginning of time for you. Very similar to what we find in the coming of Christ. That as he comes, especially in his resurrection, we have the dawning of a new creation and a new age, which we observe, uh, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but uh, I'll say this again in a minute, which we observe week by week on our weekly Sabbaths on the first day. The dawning of a new age, which we memorialize uh, by our gathering and by our worship, by our weekly Sabbaths. What is so interesting to notice, and I think it's a point that we are prone uh, to miss at times, maybe always, is that this is something that the Lord always does. It's why when I prayed this morning, I said, Lord, it's a new year. I think I did it again this evening. You might say, well, the Lord isn't interested in that, but I tell you that he is. He is interested. Because he's the Lord of history. He's the Lord of time. The Lord shows a great interest in time, even in making the world. Though there I'm getting ahead of myself again. The Lord is always interested in time. He always connects 
our worship and our salvation with time. If you read the, the, the whole of the Bible, you'll always see that. I remember in seminary hearing a history professor say that the way to control a population or a nation is to control the calendar. It's something that you'll see if you study history. You set certain festivities and holy days and they begin to observe them and then you control them. Time is important. It's gravely important. Well, let me say this with reverence. This is something that God also knows. As the Lord of creation, he is the Lord of time. And his people, this is where we come into the picture, don't really serve him until they too realize this. Until our use of time reflects our acknowledgement that he is the Lord of time, and just as he's the Lord of history. Notice how often he makes this plain. Now I'll stop getting ahead of myself and I'll get to the point. He does this first at creation. What you notice there is not just that God creates the world, but he creates time itself. He structures the creation around the six-day week. And then on the seventh day, he rests. And he memorialized this sequence when, uh, when it not only says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, that he hallowed the day, but then again at Sinai, which we'll read in a little bit in chapter 20, that, uh, that Israel was to keep the Sabbath. In memory of what the Lord had done. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh you shall rest as a Sabbath of the Lord your God. For this is what he did. The Lord has a great interest in time. The Lord took his own actions and made them the basis of our weekly worship. Specifically with reference to the Sabbath day. I want you to think about me, God says, in the way you use your time. So the time is significant. It is specifically highlighted by God himself. You cannot read the creation account or the fourth commandment and miss the element of time being stressed. Which is why I say as a side, I don't mean to be too controversial, but this is my belief. And this is why this is my belief. That I don't believe the days of creation meant anything other than literal days. I feel the point is all but lost if you make it mean anything other than that, ages or something like that. No, the Lord is stressing, again, the element of time. Six days and then a seventh. And so practically we see that, that the way God structures time and the way we observe and acknowledge the way he structures time is uh, an act of religion. And it is an indication of uh, personal religion. Which is also why it becomes, as we see here, a test of our fidelity to him. This is something the Lord says he wants them to observe. And we can think what might have happened and what did happen when they failed to observe uh, the Lord's calendar. It is an indication of piety, I'm saying, of fidelity to the Lord. Of course, we also know how other things seek to intrude and compete with this point, which is why I... I, uh, I Object to observing Christmas as a sacred holy day? The reason is that I recognize how important time is. That the way we structure it itself is an act of devotion. And it reveals our priorities. But if God never commanded we observe this or that day, then we really aren't holding to this principle. Which is that our devotion to God is revealed in our observance of his special days. Certainly this was true of Israel, or at least it was meant to be true. In this festival and all the others, she was observing more than anything else God's lordship over all her days. But we never find Israel inventing new ones. 
special holy days for her to observe beside uh, beside these. And certainly we see the same thing as we turn to the pages of the New Testament. What do we find there? Well, we find those Christians observing the first day of the week. The Lord, by his resurrection, hallowing the first day, bringing in a new arrangement, a new structure to be observed by the people of God, which uh, we see in all of those pages the first Christians immediately began to observe. We also know this uh, from history. Of course, with the passage of time, uh, she began to invent her own days to observe besides these. And we could debate the merits of that another time. I've already made myself plain. But my point is, with reference to the Passover and the structuring of a new way of life with a new calendar, notice how important time is to God. Not only in the fourth commandment, but in so many other places. And then begin to consider how you use your time. And even how you view it. If we claim that God is the Lord and that he is our Lord, let him be the Lord of time and the Lord of days. And remember that false worship also involves a false calendar. Do you remember what uh, Paul says in Galatians 4.10? You observe days and months, seasons and years. I fear I've, I've labored over you in vain. And so the principle also works in reverse, doesn't it? Now, another point along the same lines is what Matthew Henry calls the antiquity of family religion. Here we see one family gathering, or if too small to uh, consume the lamb, several gathering together in one home to do so. But the point is, as we find here, worship was held in the homes. The home uh, in, 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 in each of these cases was considered a sacred place where the sacred rite was to be observed. And this is something that God commanded. It is something which we find is an ancient principle of religion. That the home is a place of worship and it must be regarded so by us. It is and can be a place where sacred business and sacred transactions transpire. And you see how children were also included in this as part of the household. The parents were meant to tell the children and to involve them in the festivities so that God's name would be remembered for generations. Recently, I was reading in Daryl Hart's book on Presbyterianism. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, Recovering Mother Kirk. That was the name of it. I, and I was teaching this on Wednesday nights earlier in the year uh, that uh, he was saying that a really organic and covenantal and old school model of church growth was to focus on the children. And you don't hear much talk of that today, do you? But that's the old model. That's the Presbyterian model at any rate. It, it used to be. Do you want to grow the church and do you want to see her prosper for generations to come? Focus on the children. That's not the only thing, but in many ways, that's the main thing. A zeal and a jealousy that they should grow up knowing the Lord, seeing them as the future of the church. And part of the crisis that's facing the modern evangelical church is that all the children are leaving, despite all the programs that are made for them. Beloved, these are the old paths, and they don't just go back to ancient Presbyterianism of a bygone era. They go back... Even to these times we read of in Exodus. It's a great encouragement to me to see all of the children here. And even to see the, the, the presence of uh, as many as three generations present in this church. And I, I would just say to you, that's the way to do it. That's what we should be doing. But let us see 
all these young children and recognize that cultivating their faith is as important as any other task God has given us to do. There's nothing more important. Recently, we have sought distress. Uh, this was, uh, I don't remember when, it was sometime in Sunday school, not too long ago, the importance of family worship. This is something we want to see you all doing, worshiping in the homes as Israel was commanded to do here. We've also sought to help the children to profess faith uh, through the communicants class. And these are only the beginnings of what we are seeking to do. Our Our work is not finished when the children profess faith. Listen to what the Lord is saying here. Our ambitions surely are greater than that. We would even seek their children and their children's children. Looking for God's faithfulness in generations to come. That is a truly covenantal model of church growth. And that's the Lord's model, obviously. But the really important thing here, as we know, is the Paschal Lamb. That is the point I said I wanted to emphasize and to stress this sermon. The first thing that we see about the the Passover as it involved the Paschal Lamb was that it was a meal to be observed. They were to slay the, the lamb and then they were to eat it. And if there was anything left over, well, let me say this first. Uh, if a family was so small they couldn't eat it all, then they were to invite another family. The, the, the point was to eat the lamb. And if there was anything left over, they were to burn it the next morning. Which is an interesting detail I'll explain in a moment. But there are many details here. Details concerning the Passover meal, which we later see our Lord observing in the Gospels. Details which are worth noticing since they are highlighted in the text and since Israel was to observe this meal in this detailed way. Uh, And so let me tell you what they are. The first is the lamb that was slain. Verse 21. He says, slay the, the Passover lamb. Or slay the Paschal Lamb. That is what Moses told Israel to do. And we know from earlier verses that the Lamb was to be unblemished. As a shadow of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. If you want to know why the Lamb was to be unblemished. It wasn't because the Lamb could atone for sin. It was because the Lamb was a type of Christ. The blood of the lamb was to be shed in the place of the blood of the firstborn. So we have the principle of substitution. Their children wouldn't be killed like Egypt's because of the lamb. And it is the sacrificial character that we must try to appreciate. As the Lord indicates in verse 27. uh, Let's see. It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. He calls it a sacrifice. Its real efficacy, Voss says, was derived from its sacrificial character. I was interested to read that uh, older Protestant fathers were uncomfortable with that language because the Roman Catholics make so much of the sacrificial character of the meal uh, than bringing that, uh, that idea into the sacrificial character of the Lord's Supper. And obviously we, we repudiate that. We don't teach that there is a sacrifice weekly held at the table. There really is no way to deny this, as much as we want to repudiate Roman Catholicism, that there was indeed a sacrificial character here uh, involved in the Passover. And we really don't know what to make of it unless we see it like this. And we're just denying what the Lord himself says when he says it's a sacrifice to the Lord. There was involved in the slaying of the lamb and the shedding of blood 
a principle that was present in all the sacrifices which God appointed. One which is stressed in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, which I keep uh, referring to in our study of Hebrews because it explains uh, the need for the shedding of blood. And that is that uh, the blood is that which cleanses and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Uh, That is the Lord's principle. And so there is uh, present uh, the principle uh, not only of atonement, but of expiation and of forgiveness. That's what stands out to us. That God, by this means, would not deal with Israel as her sins deserved. And this is also evident in a second element, namely the sprinkling of blood. Not only was the blood shed, the blood of the lamb in the place of the firstborn, but the blood of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the lamb was to be was to be dipped in with hyssop and sprinkled on the doorposts. Verse 7. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over. Verse 22. After saying, slay the Passover lamb, in verse 21, you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And uh, and as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, this involved sprinkling of blood. And it is this element, not just the shedding, but the sprinkling, more than anything else that makes the sacrificial character of the meal so apparent. That the blood shed and uh, is sprinkled on the homes, consecrating them for holy use. Just as we later find in Exodus 24 and in Hebrews chapter 9, which we read earlier. There is in this a real communication of grace that not only uh, was signified by the blood, verse 13, but which was really conveyed before there was a tabernacle and an altar on which to sacrifice. The doorposts became for a time their sacred altars. And as we see in Hebrews chapter 9, the blood of the covenant which is shed must also be sprinkled in order to convey its saving virtue and its sparing mercy. Which in this case involved their being spared from the Lord's coming judgment in slaying the firstborn. God describes it as as literally a passing over. His judgments passing them by. A sparing of those whose sins were blotted out by the blood. A real demonstration of saving grace. It wasn't, you see, that Israel was righteous and Egypt was not. It was that both were sinful. But only one found refuge under the blood. And we see therefore what a a fitting symbol this becomes of Christ. Whom Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. And we're really only beginning to explore this. But Paul says there that Christ is our Passover. Pointing to the way that he cleanses us and he sanctifies us by his blood. He sets us apart for holy use. And he causes God's judgment to pass by. And we also see, I've alluded to this a few times already, how Christ institutes the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal. Again, pointing to the sacrificial character of uh, the Passover. Uh, For he says, in the shedding of my blood is the forgiveness of sin and the blood of the covenant. Carrying over the same meaning into his death. Declaring that the new covenant of forgiveness is found in his blood. Poured out and sprinkled on the altar. A blood in which we are able to find refuge like Israel. And like the Passover, 
a blood shed and sprinkled that we memorialize in our regular observance of the Lord's Supper. Not as though to sacrifice him afresh, as the Roman Catholics uh, foolishly claim, but in order simply to remember, just as the Lord tells Israel here. Not only that, but we also see the element of inward cleansing present by the sprinkled blood. Again, we are meant to see a real spiritual transaction taking place here. A real communication of grace. There was, in the sprinkling of blood, an, an element of inward purification, just as much as there was that of expiation or atonement. God was not only blotting out their sin, he was cleansing them inwardly. There is, as Hebrews describes, a cleansing of the conscience from dead works. Of course, we also know from Hebrews that this is only found in the blood of Christ, as with the atoning nature of the sacrifice, but as that blood shed and sprinkled was prefigured and typified by the Paschal Lamb, those who had true faith like Moses began to enjoy these blessings in advance. Again, not only the forgiveness of sins, but the inward cleansing of a, a guilty conscience from dead works. In the sign, they began to enjoy the reality. They began to anticipate it. And God was cultivating them faith in the true Paschal Lamb, Jesus Christ, who is our Passover. A further indication, very briefly, of the sacrificial nature of the meal was that the lamb was to be eaten and nothing was to be left over or else it was to be burned. This is something uh, that may seem to be insignificant, but in fact, uh, this is something that we find the priests later doing in their sacrificial meals that they were to be uh, observing in the Levitical law. We also see how they were to all eat at an appointed time all together, verse 8. Here we see it as a common meal, a common participation in the same salvation, the same grace, calling to mind the communion of the Lord's Supper. The bread we see was to be unleavened, something we will consider next time, as a sign of moral purity. The herbs were to be bitter in order to remind them of the bitterness of their bondage. The meal was to be eaten in haste for their deliverance was at hand, though it was not yet. Something peculiar to the first Passover meal. All of the details of the meal we see had great significance. But the greatest point of all that we are meant to see about this meal is that it belonged to the Lord. It is the Lord's Passover, which is exactly what the Lord himself says. Well, I have it in my notes. I don't remember. Where it is in the text. We'll get to it. I suppose when it appears in my notes. It's the Lord's Passover. It's something he appointed. In other words the Passover. It wasn't man's idea. It wasn't something that Moses. Suggested to God. It was rather something. That God commanded to Moses. God's idea. And God's desire to exercise his grace. In this way being expressed. Pointing man to the need for atonement if man was to be forgiven and spared of his coming judgment. How is it that God's judgment would pass over and pass by? Only, he says, by the shedding of blood. Speaking of the need that his wrath be abated or else it will indeed and in fact come upon the sinner. It is a sacrifice to the Lord, as with all sacrifices. The priestly character of the Passover is something we cannot fail to miss. 
It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, verse 27, just as the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 3, that all the high, all high priests are appointed to make sacrifices on behalf of men to the Lord or in, in things pertaining to God. The point is, sacrifices were offered to him on behalf of men. And so here. And because these sacrifices come at his appointment, They are sacrifices he desires and which are fit to reveal his glory. They are things which, when he sees, he will honor, as he says in verse 23. For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in your house and smite you. And so he says, verse 12, And I suppose this is what I was looking for. Look at the end of that verse. He says, I am the Lord. And that's what he's been saying all along. That's the great emphasis and the great lesson of the book of Exodus. It's what the Lord says to Moses in chapter 6. He says, the fathers didn't know me like this, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had some apprehension of the name, but not like I will give you. They knew me as, uh, as Elohim. You will know me as Jehovah. Uh, or, or God Almighty. Uh, I don't remember what that is in the Hebrew. But at any rate, the point is Jehovah was what Israel was uh, to see the Lord as. The, the, the significance of the name. Let me read what he says in Exodus chapter 6 just to make the point. I am the Lord, verse 2. And I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Again, whatever that is. El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Uh, But by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them. The point is, I'll make myself known in that way now. And so he is here. The point of the Passover, beloved, and the Paschal Lamb, is to reveal himself as the Lord. So that Israel and we might know and see that he is the Lord, and there is no other. Let us see what it means for him to say this, and all that it involves. Both is essential and unchangeable nature. I am who I am. Chapter three. Here is the Lord. He cannot change. He's not subject to change. None of his actions or decisions are based upon the changing opinions of man. He is stable. He is eternal. His will and his being are unalterable. But not only that. But there are two great attributes. And I've been stressing this throughout. That the Lord attaches to the name and which the name reveals. And in apprehending, we, uh, we also uh, gain a better understanding of the name. And that is his great mercy and his great judgment. Seeing both as eternal attributes of the eternal unchangeable God. As the Lord states in verse, uh, verse verses 6 and 7 of Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That is in many ways uh, the greatest statement in the book of Exodus. And it is something that we find again uh, being revealed to us here. These are verses which explain everything that he does. How each of his actions reveal that he is the Lord. Well, what does it mean to say that he is the Lord? 
These two verses tell us exactly what it means. That involved in his eternal being and his eternal character is his mercy and his wrath. And both equally. And that neither can ever be seen as in competition or as one canceling out the other. The Lord doesn't appear merciful to us by canceling out his, his, his judgment or his wrath by his mercy. That isn't how it works. You don't have the slightest clue what it is for the Lord to say, I'm the Lord. When you think of it like that. But rather when we recognize that here is the eternal, un, unchanging God. We realize that both of these attributes exist in him with equal intensity and perfect purity forever. And there exists in him an equal desire to show, to show forth his glory in both of these ways. He desires to be known as merciful and as just. And never to see these two things as in competition. And do you see how the Passover reveals both aspects of his eternal being? That God, first of all, comes as the destroyer in judgment. As for Pharaoh and Egypt, God will by no means spare the wicked. He will not clear the guilty. He will surely punish them down to the very last generation. Yes, but God is in all fury and wrath. He is these things and he is them perfectly and as intensely as you can possibly imagine. But he's also gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth. These things are no less true of him and no less intensely so. And the way he makes these things come to pass on behalf of sinners who deserve his justice is by making a work of atonement. It is by making his wrath not to cease, but to rest on another. That is what is prefigured here. The principle of grace. Or how is it that grace comes to pass? This great attribute in God which he so wishes to express and reveal about himself. It is not by negating his own justice. His own desire to exercise vengeance on the wicked. It is rather by exercising his justice as fully as he possibly can. Not upon the sinner but upon the substitute. And only then does his judgment pass by. You see it doesn't disappear. It is still very near and still, in a sense, quite terrifying. Who can look on a crucified Savior and not feel the sense that God's judgments are terrible and terrifying and near? As we behold his bleeding hands and wounded body, we may be spared, but we are not unaffected. We still can perceive how awful this destroyer can be. But though he draws near, he doesn't touch us, nor does he destroy us. And so salvation and judgment are in reality very closely connected. Because as I say, they exist together in equal measure and perfect purity in the Lord. They both perfectly express what it means for God to be the Lord. And he will bring both to pass in whatever way he sees fit. And in whatever way reveals his glory most perfectly. He is too just Perfectly so to let sin to pass without an act of judgment. Yes, but he isn't all judgment. He's also mercy and grace and love and truth. All of this comes to expression at the Passover and most especially at the cross. All that God is and especially all that he is to us as sinners. The just and gracious God, the Lord. And let us glory that it is so. That God's glorious attributes shine so brightly here and there at Calvary. But lastly, 
Let us see how this was for Israel, an exercise of faith, as we see in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me just read that again. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. It was, uh, strictly speaking here, is, uh, it was uh, an act of Moses' faith. Moses was the one who believed. And as we know that this generation was unbelieving and apostate, as will later become clear, we're not surprised to see that he's the only one that's mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11. We don't read they believed and were spared. We read Abraham or or Moses believed and was spared. But the point is, faith was here as always the real issue. The point in question in the life of the visible church. Who are the true believers? What is it that separates the true and the false? Who are those whose faith is saving, especially as they rest under the refuge of the blood, both shed and sprinkled? Who are those who know that God is the Lord? There never has been a time when the question was not, do you have faith? It was the the question that faced Moses. It's the question that faces us today. Again, it's the question that separates the true and the false. It is what distinguishes the formal professor at the table of the Lord's Supper and the one who is saved by his participation in the blood, the presence of saving faith. This was something Moses had. He did not observe the Passover with formality. He did so assured of things hoped for, convicted of things not seen. He both believed that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He had faith. And so he participated by faith in the Lord's salvation. Not merely outwardly, as with Israel in his participation of the Exodus event, but inwardly. As the renovation of the inner man and along with Abraham before him through this rite began to look forward to the day of Christ with gladness. And Lord willing, this is what we will go on to consider. All that this uh, this rite, the Passover, involves in the coming sermon. But for now, uh, let us turn to the Lord in praise by standing and singing together hymn 193. Oh. 
Receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.